Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. So we're going we're gonna to open up Zechariah 11 this morning and cover the first 14 verses. And actually, I stopped at 14 because between verse 14 and 15 is the entire church age. And then 15 opens up about the tribulation. So it's just kind of a natural break. But before we open up the word of God, let's do what we always do as a family and, and go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you so much for this time together. Lord, I just thank you so much for your word and all of these prophecies that you laid out in advance. Jesus, that you fulfilled literally to the day at your first arrival. And God, I thank you that for every one of those, there are at least eight of your second arrival. That there is more in the word of God about you coming back to rule and to reign than any other single topic in the entire Bible. And God, as your people, we look to that day that you as a righteous king will take your throne in Jerusalem. And we thank you, Lord, for these promises. Speak to us this morning and teach us everything. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so 1 John 2, 27 and 28, you know, we get to... It's amazing how the Bible's the only book written who the author himself dwells inside of you. And that's just incredible because you as, as having the Holy Spirit, you have the opportunity for the Lord to teach you everything. And the word of God is inexhaustible. And every time you read it, you're gonna find something new uh, every single time. I, I did it just yesterday in my daily reading. I found something out of Psalms I had never noticed before that links to a different Psalm. And what I would encourage all of you to do, like what I did starting in 2011, is just get a journal, uh, mine I do notes on my phone, and just write those things down. Because it's incredible when you go back and you look on the footprints of the Holy Spirit of how he grows you and teaches you. He is just such a, an intimate, deliberate God that wants a relationship with you. So do that. So our, our, our timeline here in the Old Testament, you know, from creation with at the very beginning, all the way to the close of the Old Testament, we're in Zechariah right now studying this, and the way this timeline breaks it out, it, it breaks out the sort of paradigms in history, you know, from creation to Job, and then Job to the Exodus, and you can kind of see when the Lord wrote different books of the Bible on that timeline, and then, of course, the, the, the exile to Babylon is, is where kind of that timing that we're in. So Israel didn't obey God's word for 490 years. They're supposed to let the land rest every seventh year. They didn't do that for 490 years. And so God said, you owe me 70 years. And he took them to Babylon into captivity. And Nebuchadnezzar was his instrument of judgment. Well, Cyrus and Persia conquer Babylon, release Israel to go back and rebuild the temple. And they get back and they're not able to get very far because they're being attacked the walls destroyed, and the Lord raises up a couple different prophets during that time, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. Remember, Haggai was encouraging them to finish the temple, whereas Zechariah was encouraging them to grow in, into spiritual maturity, which would allow them to finish the work God set their hand to. So you have this incredible book. Zechariah just kind of appears out of nowhere and then disappears, and it's amazing the messages that God gives through him. And then, of course, at the very end, after Malachi, a lot of people call that 400-plus-year period between Malachi and Matthew when Jesus shows up as the silent years. And they're really not silent at all because God prophesied them in advance in Daniel 11. That whole chapter, all the way until about the last four or five verses, is, is covering prophetically that time period. And what God laid out was the battle that would ensue when Alexander the Great died 
he left his entire kingdom to four generals. And those four generals battled for power the whole time. And that's the kings of the north, the south, the east, and the west that are all laid out there in Daniel 11. So whenever you read that, that will give you a little bit of a feeling. You know, Zechariah is probably, just as a reminder, the most messianic book in the Old Testament. It's all about Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus. The Lord speaks of the stone with seven eyes, which is a curious link to Revelation. His throne and Jesus being crowned. Jesus the Nazarene, that's a prophecy that's fulfilled. The king riding on a donkey. Remember, we, we studied that in Zechariah 9.9 and how it links to Daniel's first 69 of his 70 weeks of his prophecy. His betra- uh, the shepherd, he, he'll be a shepherd, a good shepherd. And then today, we're down on this list to his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. That's all prophesied in advance in Zechariah. And the, the specifics of it are just incredible. Jesus being pierced or crucified, that's in Zechariah 12. His return in power and wiping out his enemies is in Zechariah 14, so the, the last chapter of the book. Here's kind of the outline of it, what we've been through to this point. Remember all of those visions in Zechariah 1, starting in verse 7, all the way to chapter 6, verse 15, all 10 of those visions were given to him by God in one night. And so Zechariah had a, a long night, so to speak. Probably didn't get much sleep that night. But we covered all of those. And then there's this interlude where God declares to them that he's going to change their, their fasting and their mourning into joy and feasting. And that's in chapter 7 and 8. And then you have Zechariah 9 through 11 is all about the first arrival of Christ. 12 through 14 is about the second arrival of Christ. So it's pretty amazing that God's laid it out that way. Now, the 9 through 11 laying out the first advent of Christ, there are so many specific prophecies in there. Um, If you guys remember a while back, I had a slide that just showed every, or at least a, a somewhat exhaustive list of every prophecy Jesus fulfilled the first time. A lot of those are actually out of Zechariah the first time he showed up. The second time starts in chapter 12 through 14, and it's a time where God restores Israel finally to the inheritance he promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15, the land from the river Nile through Egypt to the river Euphrates in Iraq. That's, that's their territory. It's not the little bit of land they, they occupy right now is one-tenth the size of the state of Oklahoma. And that's not what God promised them. God promised them from Nile to the Euphrates. And the last few chapters of Ezekiel actually show how the Lord will petition the land in the millennium by tribe. And then David is resurrected three times in the Old Testament. David's resurrected to be the prince over Israel in the millennium. And God prophesied that long after David had died. <clears throat> so pretty incredible. There's their inheritance, Israel's inheritance is always tied to the earth. And when Jesus steps foot the second time on the earth, they get resurrected. All the Old Testament saints from Adam all the way to John the Baptist. Remember, Jesus said the law and the prophets were until John. John the Baptist is the close of the Old Testament. And then the church starts after that. So in any case, pretty amazing because the Jews know that a kingdom will be established. If you remember this in Acts 1, 6, and 7, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. So notice that Jesus did not dispute that the kingdom would be restored. He told them it's not for them to know the time it would be. So you've got to rightly divide God's word. He simply told them that you don't need to know the time. Just trust me, it will happen. Pretty amazing. Okay, as we open up chapter 11 here today, The prophecies of this chapter are actually given after the completion of the temple. So remember, they've been trying to do the temple or rebuild the temple by Zerubbabel for quite a while. They've been stalled out some, restarting, and God is is now the temple's complete, and God gives these prophecies to Zechariah after that time. He's addressing concerns in the distant future now. He's declaring that there is going to be a scattering of the people after the time of Zechariah. So this chapter explains why the blessings and promises 
of the previous chapter are delayed for Israel. You know, a lot of people in 70 AD, when, when they were scattered all over the world in the diaspora after Titus and, and Rome destroyed the temple, wiped out Jerusalem, and the Israelites were scattered all over the world. That's kind of when the church got a little off track and thinking, well, God must be done with Israel. He must, have, he must have just had enough with them and wiped them out. And if you remember, or well, if you've studied this, you would know, during World War II, when Hitler was rising to power and trying to take over the world, a lot of people in the church thought that was the Antichrist and we were going into the tribulation. And those that were good students of the Bible and rightly dividing God's word recognized, no, Israel's not back in the land yet. That can't be. And sure enough, what happened? May 14th of 1948, they got back in the land. And we've been kind of in the last of the last days ever since then for about 75 years now. So if you've got you've to stay true, and we'll see this a couple times today in our study, you've got to keep the word of God exactly what it says. Not what you think it says or what you want to interpret it says, but God, God says three times in his word, don't add to or take away from my word. And so part of the joy is studying his word and taking it exactly as he says it. So this chapter though, in chapter 11, what they did was they rejected their true shepherd. And so at his first arrival, and because of that, they will reject or God will experience rejection on them. He, he will cause them to experience rejection themselves, uh, climaxed ultimately with their acceptance of the idle shepherd in the tribulation, the false shepherd. And all of this is a necessary prelude to the second advent of their true deliverer and the Messiah. Remember when Stephen was about to be stoned in Acts and he goes through this whole dialogue to the, the Jewish leadership. And when you follow his logic, he starts at Abraham and he goes all the way to the day of Jesus. And when you follow what he says, he's telling them every single time God told you to do something, you missed it the first time. Because they told, God told Abraham to go somewhere. Well, he went upriver until his dad died. And then he went. And, and on and on it goes. And so what the history of the Jews just have this storied history of every time God tells them to do something the first time, they always miss it. And then they get it the second time. But this chapter is going to present the good shepherd in his first advent who will give his life for the sheep. And this chapter at the end, we'll take this next week, we'll close by presenting what I think is the only physical description of the Antichrist in the Bible. You know, the idle shepherd who will shear the sheep and kill them for food, not care for them. You know, the role of a shepherd is to keep the sheep in line. And God uses this all throughout the Bible but it's to lead the sheep, to make sure they stay in the flock, to correct them if, they, if necessary. And, and we're gonna talk about this in a minute, but the shepherd had a rod and a staff, and those were for two different things in terms of caring for the flock. But the idle shepherd, who Israel will accept in the end times, he's got so many titles, but he's gonna come in and lead them to destruction, into a covenant that Isaiah says is with death. And they will accept this false shepherd the first time he appears, unlike Jesus. Pretty incredible. Then finally, though, they will not miss their Messiah the second time he appears. When we come back with him in Revelation 19 on our white horses, they will not miss Jesus the second time. So the first three verses of this chapter, though, they're, we'll kind of miss it in the English, but they're very poetic. Uh, God is an amazing writer, and what he's pointing to this whole time, he's pointing to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So hundreds and hundreds of years later, that's what God's pointing to in the first part of this chapter that will result because Israel rejected their Messiah when he showed up, it's going to lead to the destruction of 70 AD. So the verse one here, open thy doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour thy cedars. Now, remember, Lebanon is north of Israel. Its nickname, you'll find this sometimes in the Bible, the white one. It comes from the snow-covered mountains in the area. I actually worked with a guy for a lot of years who grew up in Lebanon. He was Lebanese and loved to go back there and would show me pictures. It's a beautiful, beautiful nation, uh, very scenic. The cedars of Lebanon, which you'll find that phrase all over the Bible, 
they're famous because these cedar forests were just vast, you know, millions of acreage of cedars. But the cedars, those cedars provided timber for the temple, if you remember from 1 Kings 5-6. And it's thus addressed first by God, that since the temple will be destroyed in 70 AD, God's addressing the source of the cedars of Lebanon to open up the chapter. So the, the cedars of Lebanon. Okay, in verse two, how fir tree for the cedar is fallen because the mighty are spoiled. Howl, O ye oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage has come down. Now, Bashan is also known as the area in the northern part of Israel. It's just east of the Jordan River, the Golan. You might recognize that phrase for it. Uh, Bashan's a very curious area all throughout the Bible. If you remember Psalms 22, Jesus is hanging on the cross, first person singular talking. Remember the psalm opens up, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The whole, the whole psalm is Jesus on the cross from beginning to end. Well, you see some things in that psalm that you don't see in the Gospels. And one of them is that Jesus declares, the bulls of Bashan have compassed me about. And what he's seen, it's a very demonic stronghold, Bashan. Uh, remember Moses and the children of Israel fought Og, the king of Bashan, that area who was a, a Nephilim. But that area was very demonically charged and very spiritually um, uh, has a stronghold over it. And what Jesus was seeing was behind our physical dimensional veil in terms of the spiritual side, those fallen angels and demons were surrounding him on the cross, mocking him constantly. And he saw that. And you know, can you imagine the creator of the universe hanging there and having to die while his enemies just mocked him constantly. And only he knew, now if you were a student of the Bible, you would know he would rise again, but only he knew that in three days and three nights, he'd be coming out of that grave and declaring victory to them. But God's judgment, so what God is saying here is this judgment in 70 AD is gonna fall on the entire land from north to south, from the Lebanese border all the way down to Bashan. Okay, so he's kind of covering the whole territory. There's a voice of the howling of the shepherds in, in verse three here. For their glory is spoiled, a voice of the roaring of young lions. For the pride of Jordan is spoiled. So on the banks of the Jordan River, there were these kind of thickets south of the Sea of Galilee. It was a place where lions dwelt. And you see that in Jeremiah 50, verse 44. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the swelling of Jordan. He's talking about that geographic area. And the young lions, or Kerephim in the Hebrew, they were weaned and began to raven it around in that territory to satisfy constant appetites. And you can find that in Judges 14.5, Psalm 17.12, and 104.21. So Lebanon, Bashan, and Jordan are thus indicative of the whole land in this vision. God's giving Zechariah. Now, you, you, again, you miss it in the English, but all of the Hebrew verbs combined in verses two and three, they speak to the severity and the reality and the suffering of the coming judgment upon the land. And you tend to not pick that up so much in the English, but in the Hebrew language, it's very poetic if you could read that. Okay, in verse four here, thus saith the Lord my God, feed the flock of the slaughter. So some Jewish teachers believe that Zechariah may have actually had to act out these, these prophecies like Ezekiel. Remember Ezekiel had to, he, he had to play in a sandbox and build a sand fortress and he put little armaments around and had to show how, how Jerusalem's gonna be besieged and tear down the wall and he had to, to walk around um, barren for a lot of the time and lay on his sides and he had to act out all these prophecies. A lot of ancient Jewish teachers believe Zechariah did the same thing as a message to Israel. Uh, but this is a commission of the Son of God by the Father. The Messiah is given the task of feeding the flock, which will be slaughtered. So you have to feed the flock that will be slaughtered. The Hebrew word for feed here uh, is raha. It literally means to pasture, tend, graze, or feed. So it's got a pretty deep meaning. It's used in the opening of Psalms 23. Remember the famous Psalm 23, the, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want that word shepherd 
is the word here in Zechariah 11.4 for feed. And this specific Hebrew word, it's used eight times in the book of Psalms. So let's look at a few of those. Psalms 28.9, save thy people and bless thine inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. So lift them up forever. Israel is not going to be abandoned and put aside for a time. They, they will be lifted up forever. And that starts when Jesus steps foot back on the earth. Okay, H7462, that's in the Strong's Concordance, if you ever want to go look that up. That's what those references are in your notes. In Psalms 37.3, trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. So notice there's a conditional there. Trust in the Lord and do good. And if you do that, you shall dwell in the land and shall be fed. And what happens? They reject Jesus, they crucify him, and they, do not, they, they are not doing good. And so they are pushed out of the land for a time. And we know that to, to last until May 14th of 1948. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. And their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. Now, it's interesting that God uses the word beauty here. Because in a minute, we're going to see in Zechariah that God has two staffs, beauty and bands, and they're both broken. Psalms 80, verse 1, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock. Notice it's not Judah or Israel, it's Joseph. He he leads Joseph like a flock. Thou that dwellest between the cherubims. You can find that all through the Bible, that Jesus dwells between the cherubim. And remember in the Old Testament, there was the Ark of the Covenant, And then the lid was the mercy seat. It was two different items. The ark was made out of acacia wood, and it was gold covered. It was the same wood that was the burning bush that Moses was in front of. It's the same wood that's used in the Ark of the Covenant, and it's the same wood that's used on the, the crown of thorns for Jesus, acacia wood, if you follow that thread through the Bible. And the crown of thorns, it actually, in the Greek, is a helmet of thorns. It's not just a a ring. It's a helmet. When they pressed it in, all the thorns went into the top of Jesus's head, not just the side. And so he, it just caused that much more bleeding to our Messiah. Okay, in verse five here, whose possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty. And they that sell them say, blessed be the Lord for I am rich and their own shepherds pity them not. So whoever God put in charge to lead Israel as earthly shepherds, so to speak, they went so far astray that they were the cause of slaying all the people. And just think about that. Think about, you know, when God sets up leaders in Israel, in nations, in the church, he has high expectations for those people and, and unfortunately, you see a lot of false shepherds out there, right, all over the world who are leading people astray and, and leading congregations astray and leading nations astray, and destruction comes upon them events, eventually. Okay, verse 6, for I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord, but lo, I will deliver the men, every one, into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king, and they shall smite the land and out of their hand, I will not deliver them. That is a hefty word from God. I, you know, I've gone through a lot of trials in my life personally, ups and downs, peaks and valleys. I mean, it started from my childhood. And, you know, to think that there would possibly be a point that I could be so disobedient to God and get so far away from him that he wouldn't deliver me out of something, that is a... a hard, sobering word from the creator of the universe. Think about Samson. Remember, he was disobedient over and over and over and over. And finally, at the end, remember what happens? He thought he was going to trick the Philistines again. And they come upon him, and he can't break out of the bands. And remember what God says in, in his word? He says, for he knew not that God had left him. And he got to a point that he was so disobedient that sin, see, sin separates you and God. It doesn't draw you closer. And it's one of the reasons why God says, draw near to him and he will draw near to you. It's not the reverse. Um, 
sin separates you. And so in your own life as a Christian, you have an obligation when you get saved to not be in chains and bondage anymore. You have the opportunity now to walk in total freedom in your life by the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be in chains. You don't have to let sin of your past before you were saved beset you any longer. You can walk free. The prison doors are open and the shackles are, are off your feet. But so many Christians walk through their lives not yielding completely to Christ and letting the Holy Spirit break that bondage off of them. You know, it's, it's like you have something in your closet and you just want to leave the door closed and, well, Lord, I, don't mess with that part of my life yet. You know, I'm not ready to yield that to you. But the Holy Spirit just works on you continuously. No, you need to get that out. You need to get that out. It's amazing when you're going through your life as a believer and you're on the sanctification process. I mean, it can take years and years and years. You know, this is not an overnight thing. But it's amazing as you're in the Word of God, if you're daily in it, washing your mind with the water of the renewing power of God, it's amazing how He will pull things out of your life and just highlight to you. Isn't it? I mean, it, he is so intentional and patient, and he'll pull stuff out of your life and just highlight it of, of, hey, you need to go back and get rid of this, or you need to, you need to repent from this or seek forgiveness for, for this back in your, own, your old self, right, your old life. But Israel's possessors, they will eventually slay them, and their own leadership will do anything to kill Jesus. Remember, they tried every way possible to kill him. They set him through so many illegal trials through the Roman court and then through the Jewish court and back to the Roman court and back to the Jewish court. And they couldn't find something legally to get him. Remember, they kept trying and trying and trying. And the, own, the witnesses they brought forth couldn't even agree what he did wrong. They, they could not find a way, but they just wanted him dead so desperately. And because of that, they hold everyone else guilty except themselves for it. And remember, even, even uh, Pilate washed his hands and said, that blood be on you. Um, I, ha I have nothing to do with this man. But the rejection of the good shepherd, it leads to God's rejection of them. Now in verse 7, I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. And I took unto me two staves, the one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. Now, so God has two things as their good shepherd, beauty and bands. And a shepherd, it's, this is similar to comparing the rod and the staff of the shepherd. And you can find that in Psalms 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Okay, that's... that's speaking to our shepherd, our good shepherd, who has a rod and a staff. Now, the rod and the staff, I don't know how many of you have ever been a shepherd in your life. I'm guessing not many. Uh, but the rod and the shaft were to protect the sheep against a twofold danger, outward enemies and inward strife. So both, okay? And that's kind of the sh when you shepherd a flock, you've got to protect them from wolves and coyotes and, and bears, lions, whatever it is that would come in to seek to eat and destroy the flock. But then amongst the flock, there's sometimes there's strife that rises up that you've got to correct and get in line too. And, and you've seen this, all of you that are parents know this in your own household. You know, how many of you have, uh, we have three kids, how many of you have to sometimes make sure there's not internal strife with your own children but at the same time, they're being bullied at school or somebody's after them. You've got to correct that too. It's kind of the same, the same concept. Okay, the rod was used to fight off wild animals. It was like this short club baseball bat, you know, that you'd use to just club the face of a lion or whatever it is. I don't even know what you do with it, but somehow they fought off lions. David killed a lion. Remember he tells, actually he grabbed the lion by the beard and, and smote him according to before he fought Goliath, remember that? And he fought off a bear, and, he, and he, destroyed, he killed a bear before he fought Goliath. But in any case, so the rod was used to fight off wild animals. It's also used to count the sheep and to direct them. So if they, if they were leading the flock, 
and you have these two little sheep who, they literally, sheep are the dumbest animals on earth. They will go anywhere. If there's a hole in the fence, they'll find it, and they're going to walk straight off that cliff, no matter what happens. But the rod was used, so if they wouldn't come back into the fold, the rod, you would like prod them, like almost like a cattle prod, and you'd try to get the sheep back into the fold. The staff, the, the thing with the hook around it, it was used for more aggressive tactics. Okay, think like, okay, they're not listening to me. I've got to really get involved now and get aggressive. And so the crook or the hook would be used to put around their neck and literally just pull them back into the flock. So it's kind of two different ways. And the staff, a shepherd would use it to traverse rocky terrain, you know, to put on a rock and step up or, or use it to hook a sheep and pull it up higher if it couldn't get over something. So it's used for more internal needs. Okay, so that's kind of what God's speaking of here. Beauty, so God, with that in mind, God has these two instruments, beauty and bands. Beauty, this word in the Hebrew means grace or graciousness, pleasantness. Now, Naomi from Ruth is actually of the same root. That's what her name means, which is fascinating. Remember Naomi and Ruth, and Ruth is actually the, in the line of David and, and in the lineage of Jesus then as a result. So like a shepherd's crook, it's used to keep the sheep in the fold. Bands, this word has to do with making a covenant. So bands is a little different. It has to do with a pledge, a binding agreement between two parties. Um, and it's, like I mentioned, it's the heavy stick used to fight off wild animals or those who would try to steal the sheep. A lot of times people would come in and try a thief to try to take some to sell it somewhere. So you'd use the rod and just go club this guy, apparently, and drop the sheep. But bands would be compared to the shepherd's rod. So you've got beauty and bands. Now in verse 8 here, three shepherds, three shepherds, that's interesting because God is, is threefold. And he set up the leadership in Israel as threefold, kings, priests, and prophets. But three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Now, when the shepherd abhors God, when God appoints a leader over his people, and that shepherd or that king abhors God himself, bad things always happen. It's nothing good can come out of that situation. The Talmud, it's an ancient Jewish writing. It actually suggests that this is Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Some scholars suggest it is David, Adonijah, and Joab, who all died within a month. And to me, none of those quite fit completely because this is prophetic. You know, God's looking to 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem. So, you know, search the scriptures and see for yourself from Acts 17, 11. But I think an intriguing way to look at this is to consider the three orders that God set over Israel as the princes, prophets, and priests. So three shepherds. And he did indeed cut them off in one month when Rome was destroyed in 70, or Rome destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. The cutting and them off, I think it denotes a cessation of civil government because Israel had no civil government at that point. And God sealed up the vision and prophecy and put an end to sacrifice when Rome destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. Again, they rejected their promised Messiah. That sealed the fate of the Jewish state and they rejected him and thus he had to reject them. And you see that when Jesus rides in on the donkey. Okay, in verse nine, then said, I will not feed you that that that, that dieth, let it die. And that that is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. So these are really heavy words. You know, to get to a place of such rejection that God has, he's just had enough. You know, there's, it's like when Isaac thought so little of his birthright that he sold it for that, that bowl of porridge. And he sold it and he, he thought so little of it. I'm sorry, Esau. But he thought so little of it that he sold it for the, his birthright. And there was found no place of repentance for him from Isaac. Remember that? Remember he went, he was so sorrowful, but Isaac had no place of repentance because he had sealed his fate at that point. Now, he was still a legitimate son, 
but there is some judgment upon him. Now, Malachi also describes how Israel's failure to offer proper sacrifices and their stinginess really upset him. You know, God declared again, rather than have them continue the charade, he just says to Malachi, let them die. Just let it be over. So Josephus actually records um, in, the, in the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the famine and cannibalism that was taking place. And you can find that in Wars of the Jews uh, verse or volume six, uh, 201, 13. You can also find in Deuteronomy 28, 54 through 57, Lamentations, Ezekiel 6, 12. But God delights in obedience over sacrifice, and that's what they were missing. He wanted their obedience, not these faulty kind of half-hearted sacrifices. They were just going through the motions. And you see that in 1 Samuel 15, 22, and Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. You know, God wants your heart, not your actions. Your actions follow out of giving him your heart and giving him all of you. Obedience over sacrifice. Okay, in verse 10 here, and I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder that I may break my covenant which I had made with all the people. So cut it asunder or chopped it into pieces. You know, God's patience is finally exhausted. He's so hurt that he breaks the beauty of his correction. You know, there is, there is something beautiful about God's correcting love. It's beautiful because in Hebrews, remember he says, thank him if you receive correction. It means you're a legitimate son. You know, a parent corrects their children out of love not out of anger, not out of, out of tr- to smite them or to spite them. When you correct out of love, you're correcting someone and shaping them and helping them grow to become better. And that's what God does. And it's a beautiful thing. But he's breaking the beauty of his correction. Now, the Hebrew word for my covenant here, again, it means agreement or pledge man to man. And it's from the root barah, or to cut up, as in sacrificing animals to seal the contract. You see that in Genesis 15 with Abraham? Or to eat a banquet together to seal a friendship. You see that with Jacob and Laban in Genesis 31, verses 44 through 54. You know, some of God's promises to Israel had been conditioned upon obedience. That doesn't, that does not disannul all of the unconditional promises to them like the land grant, that they would have uh, someone from the seed of David would sit on their throne forever. That's Jesus. There are many unconditional promises that didn't, had nothing to do with their obedience. I've given you this. This is your land. And God affirms it over and over to, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on down the line. But there are some promises that have a lot of conditions around them. You've got to be obedient. Follow my word. Do this. And his Unfortunately, they, they were disobedient. It led to their destruction. Okay, in verse 11 here, and it was broken in that day, and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of God. You know, Jesus wept over all of Israel because of their rejection. He would have gathered them to himself in Matthew 23, 37. Remember when he's on the donkey? And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thee, thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicken under her wings, and ye would not. You know, just imagine how, how our Messiah must have felt so heartbroken that his very people that he came for rejected him. And he's weeping over all of Israel You know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it's a figure of speech that means the whole nation. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, in verse 38. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And they will sing that when he returns the second time. Okay, now verse 12 looks way into the future here. God, this is incredible. Verse 12, and I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. 
So Jesus all of a sudden is looking to that point where he is rejected by Judas and sold for 30 pieces of silver. Israel was so indifferent about their Messiah that they put a price on the creator of the universe. They cared so little for him and rejected him that he was worth to them 30 pieces of silver that all it could do was buy a field. Isn't that amazing how little regard they had for him? You know, the world will try to con- and convince you, though, to put a price on Jesus. Can you be bought? Can you, can you forsake your relationship with the Lord for a price? And that price can be paid in a lot of different ways, right? Uh, money, enjoyment, a title, something, fill in the blank, whatever the world has to offer. And, and the world and the enemy will constantly ask you in your walk, can they buy your affection from your Savior? And the, the, real, the real battle is to say, no, that I'm staying with my Lord. In my heart, I've given all of it to Jesus, and you cannot buy it off. I'm not going to blaspheme him. I'm not going to reject him. You saw that really start in 2020, right? How, on, on would you reject your Messiah? Would you, would you not go to church? Would you... Uh, not sing. Remember in California, they wanted people to not even sing worship because they'd spread something. You know, would you not sing praises to your king at the, at the response of the government? You could stand in line at a, at a liquor store and talk to anyone you wanted, but you couldn't sit next to a brother or sister in Christ and sing a song of worship to the king. It's just incredible. So Matthew 26, 14 and 15, then one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, what will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they coveted with him for 30 pieces of silver, right there out of Zechariah 11, 12. Now, interestingly enough, 30 pieces of silver, this was also the price of a gourd slave. If an ox, this is in Exodus 21, verse 32. If an ox murdered a slave then the owner was to pay 30 pieces of silver. And I find that fascinating. It's the same price. And what was Jesus? He became a bond slave for us. He was gored. His visage was so marred, they didn't even recognize him as a man, according to Isaiah 65. He was beaten so badly, they didn't think he was human. And I don't know if he'll bear those scars for all eternity or not. Um, Certainly when his resurrected body they didn't recognize him. They didn't know who he was. They ripped off his beard. You don't find that in the Gospels, but in Isaiah, they plucked off his beard. They, they literally would take his beard and just tear it out. And so just imagine all the scar tissue of that skin pulling with it and the beating that he had to ensue. Now, the slave, the ox that killed the slave was to be stoned afterwards. This is all in Exodus 21:32. And isn't it interesting in Revelation 16, 21, there fell upon men a great hell out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. You can find this in Leviticus and in Exodus, the punishment for killing a, a goring, goring the slave and for blaspheming God was stoning. And isn't that interesting that the world's going to be stoned at the end of it all during the tribulation, one of the last plagues out of the bowls is this great hailstone, the weight of a talent, it's about 200 pounds, these hailstones from heaven. Job got a glimpse of this. Remember, God asked Job, who's seen the treasury of snow laid up for the day of battle? God has a great treasury of these hailstones laid up somewhere that, that it'd be interesting if somebody found it. I wonder how big it is. It might be, maybe it's all of Antarctica, I don't know. It's, but it might be out in space somewhere. Um, interesting, too, that a free man, a free slave, was worth twice that, 30 pieces of silver. And, and you, when you are set free, when you become a bond slave to Christ and you're set free from the world, you are worth more than double when you're enchained to it. And just think about that. God wants you free. Okay, Jesus was betrayed by his people, his very friends, and all for 30 pieces of silver. When you fast forward to Zechariah 13, 6, One shall say unto him, to Jesus, what are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. 
And remember when he's in the room after he's resurrected, remember Thomas wouldn't believe till he saw the nail prints in his wrists. And he was wounded in the house of his friends. And I know a lot of you have gone through your life where you've been wounded by a friend or a family member or someone. You know, Jesus can relate to you with that, in that situation. And sometimes those are the wounds that, frankly, are the deepest and most difficult to get over. You know, the abuse of a, of a parent or the strife of a best friend or uh, maybe it was someone that you thought was in, a, in your Christian walk with you your whole life. And sometimes those wounds can dig deep. But it's the only place in the Bible where Jesus is called the counselor, Isaiah 9, verse 6. He's the counselor. If you go to the true counselor, he will take all of that grief off of you and turn it into joy. Turn your sorrow into laughter. But only he can do that. You know, psychology is doomed because they don't use the word of God. Hebrews 4, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, divine asunder the soul and the spirit. Only the word of God can separate your soul, your mind, will, and emotions, and your spirit, the peace of you that is eternal. And when it does that, when the word of God does that, when Jesus, who is the word, right, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, John 1.1, 1, 1. when you go to the counselor who is the word of God, he divides that, all that grief that lays in your soul, in your mind, in your will, in your emotions, and he puts it right under your spirit and puts dominion over it. And his spirit is the only thing that can control that and keep it in check and put it rightfully where it belongs and take it off of you, that grief. And so I would just encourage you, if you've never, if you've never done that in your life and you're dealing with anything, take it to him. Get in your private place, get on your knees in your room, lay it out before him, write it down on a sheet of paper, whatever you have to do, take it to Jesus and say, Lord, this is something that I've dealt with my whole life. And I am bringing this before the throne room of the universe. And your word promises that you as the counselor will take this off of me. And I do not have to be subject to it anymore. And I'm seeking your forgiveness. I'm seeking you and your face only. And I pray that you'd set this rightfully out, out of my life and under my spirit that you created. And you breathed into me. And you do that and you will feel a freedom that you have never felt in your life. I promise you, if you've never done it, just try it. Okay, in verse 13 and the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter. So now God's going to prophesy what they're going to do with the money. Okay, cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at them, at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them into the potter in the house of the Lord. See, the Israelites, the Jewish leadership, they had very savvy accountants. Nothing against any accountants in here. They had very savvy accounts that knew ways around the law. So they knew they couldn't accept the money. It was blood money. They couldn't take it into the treasury of the temple. But what they could do with it was buy anticipated expenses and prepay them in advance. And that was okay. And so they bought this field. They bought a field to bury the dead. And that's all found in Matthew 27. Let's look at this in, starting in verse 3. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself. Now, don't confuse repentance with salvation. Um, I had a discussion with, about this with a couple in the church actually a while back, uh, just in happenstance. But to be saved, you have to confess Jesus. Repentance has nothing to do with confessing Jesus. Okay, repentance is you can finally turn to the Lord. It, repenting just means to turn away from. That's all it means. So a lot of people will go on the street, you know, and find someone that's homeless or addicted to heroin or whatever it is, and they're like, man, you just need to repent and get saved. And they can't do it because they need to get saved first, and then they can repent. And so it's the opposite is true. And you find all these people that fill churches all over the world that think they're saved because they've repented from something. And that's not how you get saved. Romans 10, 9 is how you get saved. You confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead and you shall be saved. It, nowhere does it say you've got to quit being a heroin addict to be saved. You just have to do that. Then you have the power of the living God inside of you to overcome that heroin or to overcome whatever that is. And so Judas wasn't saved. 
you can find this several spots in the Bible where Jesus said, uh, Lord, in John, remember he said, Lord, of all that you've given me, I've lost none except the son of perdition who will go into, and he talks about his own place in Hades and all that, uh, that the scripture might be fulfilled. It was prophesied in Psalms that Judas would be the one to betray him. But Judas betrayed him. He brought the 30 pieces of silver. By this point, Satan had entered Judas's body. Very, very unique event. Very special event um, in the scripture. And remember when Judas says right here in verse four, I have sinned that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Now, I find that fascinating that that could be Satan speaking through Judas. And they said, what is that to us? See that, thou that to it, you know, to that. Go do whatever you're gonna do. I, we don't care what you did. We just want the money. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple, blood money. Remember Leviticus, silver always speaks of blood. The, the tabernacle was carried on sockets of silver on the covenant of Christ and his blood. When it was set up, the stakes in the ground were silver stakes. It was established by the blood of Christ. And he cast down the pieces of silver and departed. Now the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it's not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. So again, the creative accounting. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field, all from Zechariah 11, verse 13, to bury strangers in. Wherefore, the field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them the potter's field in the Lord as the Lord appointed me. So notice... Notice in the Bible, in the New Testament, Matthew 27, it was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, not written by him. A lot of people try to use this verse to say, well, see, Zechariah didn't really write this. God says it was spoken, not written. Zechariah wrote it. So whether it was unique to Zechariah or as a prophecy that God had given Jeremiah that Zechariah wrote down, makes no difference. God's word's true um, either way. Okay, just wrapping up here. It was not lawful to put the money in the treasury, like I mentioned. So look at these two verses, 12 and 13, one of the most remarkable prophecies in the Bible. The price that Jesus would be betrayed for, 30 pieces of silver. The side of the transaction, the temple. The ultimate recipient, the potter. And the nature of the transaction, the purchase of blood. All of that in two verses of what Jesus did on behalf of us. Okay, last verse here. Then I cut asunder mine other staff, even bands that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So God at that point, because of their reject, rejection of him, when he rode in on the donkey, God severed the relationship between Judah and Israel. And in fact, the internal strife and divisions contributed largely to the downfall of Israel when Titus would scatter them all over the world in 70 AD. The breaking of the first staff, beauty, preceded the breaking of the second staff, bands. So the beauty of God's correction was broken, and thus the band that held them together was taken away. And so as a result, the sheep were scattered all over the world. So now the Lord is working to build his church, and then he will come again to, to put Israel back together after he calls us home in 1 Thessalonians 4, which is our blessed hope from Titus 3. So they're still his people. They have a distinct future. And this entire program, God will once again focus on Israel at the end of the age. Now, they're blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles come in from Romans eleven twenty five, And remember, he declared corporate blindness on them in Luke 19, 42, saying, if thou hadst known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. So corporate blindness was put upon Israel. And until... When you start to see the scales fall off of Israel, that's how you know the church, the fullness of the Gentiles from Romans eleven twenty five, is just about full and we're gonna go home. That's how you know. And when you see Messianic Jews that are starting to declare Yeshua HaMashiach, the, the Jesus Messiah, the King, you know that blindness is starting to come off. And we're getting closer and closer, closer the fullness of the Gentiles. Now between Zechariah verse 14 and 15, comes the entire church age. So we'll open that up 
uh, next week. It's one of the 24 spaces in the Bible, actually, you can find this 24 times in the Bible, God has a break that is about, the, it's, the church is in between it, and you don't know it because it's hidden in the Old Testament. You find it in between Daniel 9, between the 69th week and the 70th week of Daniel. You find it in Isaiah 60. Remember, we talked about that at the Christmas service uh, Friday night, about when Jesus was in the synagogue opening up his ministry, when he stopped at the comma in Luke 4, and what he didn't read was the day of vengeance of, my God, of our God. That's because in between all that he came to do the first time, there's the church for what we've known has been about 2,000 years, and then he'll come back. He's going to call us home and come back. So my imploring to you is to not forsake your inheritance in the internal kingdom. You know, you have so much to live for on the other side of this, and Israel forsook their inheritance, just like Esau, just like the entire history of Israel, and God desires obedience over sacrifice. Don't just go through the motions. God, he's calling you to something higher, a higher plane of obedience, a higher plane of walking with him in a deeper relationship. And when you do that, he may then call you, okay, I need you to sacrifice this, but it's for your benefit. Uh, he desires that. And when we went through the whole book of Hebrews a while back, the whole book is structured around these five warnings to the believer. And it actually goes in an order the danger of drifting, Hebrews 2. The danger of hardening your heart, Hebrews 3 through 4. The danger of failing to mature, 5 through 6. The danger of willful sin, 10. And the danger of refusing God. See, what happens is, as a believer, you can never lose your salvation. Praise God. He paid for it all. You did nothing to earn it. You can do nothing to lose it. He paid for it. If it was up to you to keep it, you would have lost it the first day you got saved. Believe me. It's not on you. It's not what Jesus did on the cross and a whole bunch of other things. It's just what he did. And, you, and once you walk into that relationship, you're born again and you're a legitimate son. That's why God uses that with Nicodemus. You must be born again. And you can't be unborn. You, know? <laughs> you can never go back and say, boy, I'm going to get so bad in my life that I'm just going to become unborn. It can't happen. It physically cannot happen. It's impossible. So the whole book of Hebrews has nothing to do with your salvation. It's about walking with God. And what happens in your walk, you start to drift just a little bit. And if Satan can get you off just a, a tenth of a degree, walk a tenth of a degree off for a year, two years, and see how far off the center line you really are. A lot. You'll go way off track. And during that path, your heart will start to harden. You'll fail to mature in Christ you then start to commit willful sin and then you refuse God, ultimately, his correction. And it's, a, it's actually a pattern that then goes back up the scale. After refusing him, you, create, you, you are creating more willful sin in your life. You fail to mature further, you harden your heart more, and then you drift even further away. So it's a, it's a wicked cycle that goes like a snake. And the key as a believer is to be in the word of God daily to regenerate your mind, to build a relationship with the author of the, of, the, of the book, of the Bible, and the creator of the whole universe. That's what he wants more than anything is you and a relationship with you. And if, if you're here, if you found us online somewhere, Romans 10, 9 is how you get saved and get into that relationship. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart, that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's that simple, and like I said, has nothing to do with you stopping any of your sin. It just has to do with you yielding your life to him. Then let him correct it and get that out of your life. That's what it's about. And then all of your sin is turned from scarlet to white as snow from Isaiah 118. So do that today if you found us and you're not saved. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, I pray that you'd be with us in the week ahead as we, as we celebrate a new year, Father. We pray that, Lord, truly it would be the year of the open door. 2024, God, the year of the open door. That you, from Revelation 3, Jesus, you declare that any door you shut, no man can open. And any door you open, no man can close. And we thank you for that, God, that you are a 
a God that directs our steps, that guides us, that leads us. And Father, we thank you that you are the good shepherd who wants all of us and to lead us as your flock. So God, may we be obedient to your correction in our lives and may we look to you for everything in this new year. We love you, God, and we thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys have a great week.